I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to the book of John, to the book of John. As a church, we um, spent much of last year walking through the book of John, and we took a break um, to do our Advent overview of the Bible, and we're going to get back into the book of John, and I just have to tell you, the place where we broke off in the book of John was just not a great place to break off. So um, ideally, in an ideal perfect world, we would have broken off right in the middle of section, uh, right between two sections, but we broke off right in the middle of a section. But I know all of you were paying super good attention to all those sermons, so I don't really need to rehash all of them. Uh, But just to give you a general overview, where we left off in the Gospel of John last November, and all these sermons are, of course, online, is uh, the Last Supper discourse. The the discourse... um, the, the teaching that Jesus did in between the Last Supper and in between his crucifixion. And so we are going to spend the next couple of months walking with Jesus to the cross as he is teaching his disciples and giving them the last words of truth that he has for them. And uh, what we saw the last time was John 15, uh, the, the famous passage that talks about Jesus being the vine and us being the branches. And in that passage, we we see that Jesus is uh, telling the disciples that he has chosen them and put them into the vine so that he can um, so that he can bear fruit through them. And we're going to see um, Jesus pick up um, on the on some of those themes in our passage today. So we're going to be in John 15, and we're going to do verses eight uh, verse. Chapter 15, verse 18, all the way down through chapter 16, verse 15. Okay? These kind of all hang together as a unit. This is what the Word of God says. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now that they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their heart must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning." I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of their synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. 
But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he speaks, he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Father in heaven, we pray one more time that you have caused your word to bear upon our hearts we might leave this place happier and more joyful in your son despite all the tribulations in this world than we were when we entered into this place so we pray for all these things in the name of your son amen have you ever been unable to help somebody that you really cared about have you ever been unable to help somebody that you really cared about. I remember I was walking, I remember like it was yesterday, I was walking down the streets of Chicago talking to my mother who was telling me that one of my younger brothers um, had gotten himself into quite a bit of trouble and he was in high school and I was thousands of miles away and there was nothing I could do to help. And I mean, I know I joke about having brothers and I know that, you know, I would, I understand why Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. I get what they were thinking. And, and yeah, I still, I still love them. And so I wanted to help, and there was not much that I could do to help. There, I was far away. There, I, I couldn't help. And I know some of you, maybe if you're a parent, maybe if you're a sibling, um, that you know what that's like to be far away from somebody that you want to help and unable to help. And maybe you have a friend or a family member who is going through a crisis, and, and your best efforts to aid them seem paltry. Well, the, the scene that we're coming on today is... Jesus is going to be crucified and then risen again and then ascend to the Father. And he knows that there is a crisis coming for his disciples. He knows that they are about to go through trouble and trial and tribulation. And he knows that he will not be with them bodily to help them through this time. And yet, unlike us, he has quite a bit of help to give. In fact, he has a helper who is more than enough for the needs and for the moment, for the hour. And so today what I want to do is I want to, I want to talk about the crisis that is coming for the disciples, uh, and then I want to talk about the help that, God, or that Christ has for his disciples. And then I, as for my applications, I'm going to give you, I think, eight or seven or eight ways, um, seven or eight reasons that you need this help. So we're going to talk about the crisis that is coming, we're going to talk about the help that Christ gives, and we're going to talk about the reasons that you need this help that Christ gives. So here's the crisis that is coming. You can kind of look at it a couple of ways. Uh, On the one hand, um, there are things, there's a conflict that is coming between the disciples and the world. So for example, we see in verse 18 where Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you, that the disciples are going to be hated by the world. Uh, we, also, we also know that the disciples are going to be persecuted by the world. It says in verse 20, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
In fact, not only are they going to be hated, not only are they going to be persecuted, but they're going to be um, unsynagogued. That's the word in chapter 16, verse 2. He says, they will put you out of the synagogues. It, it, the, the word is literally, they will unsynagogue you. They will uh, dismiss you from the synagogue. Now, that might not seem like a, a big deal to us, but in that day and age, if you were a, a Jewish person, um, your entire social life um, hinged on the the, your place in the synagogue. And it's not unlikely that the gospel of John was written recalling the words of Christ on this night as Christians were literally being dismissed from the social fabric and the social life of the first century, that they were being unsynagogued. And as if all that wasn't enough, that they would be killed. It says, indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you Whenever he puts you to death, will think he is offering service to God. This is a crisis that is coming. There is a conflict that is coming between the church and the world, where the church will hate, or will be hated and persecuted, where where the world will unsynagogue them, remove them from society, and will indeed remove life from them. Maybe you ask, why is this conflict coming? Why is this conflict coming? Well, there's a couple ways to look at that question. Um, why is the world doing these, going to do these things to the church? Well, the simple answer is because they've done these things to the Son already. Jesus says in verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. He says again in verse 20, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So he says, the world is going to do these things to you because that's how they treated me. In fact, Jesus says in verse 19, if you are of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You remember that we talked about that promise of comfort earlier in the chapter, earlier in chapter 15, verse 16, where Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Well, here we we see Jesus says, for that reason, because I have chosen you, because I've chosen you out of the world, the world will hate you. This is the, the conflict that is coming, that, that they, they do these things because that is how they treated Christ. They also do these things because they do not know the one who sent Christ. They do not know the Father. So in verse 21, he says, but, on, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. He'll say it again in chapter 16, verse 3, he says, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. They did these things to Christ because they neither knew Him nor the Father. They didn't understand Him. They didn't know what He was about. They misunderstood Him, and they misunderstood the Father. And they did that because, as He says in verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen me and hated both me and my Father. Because they did not know Him or understand Him as He was. They they hated Him because they did not know the One who sent Him. They hate the one who sent him. They hate the Father. Now, that is a crisis. That's a, the conflict that is coming for the church. Seems like it's heading towards this apex, and it seems like there's going to be inevitable conflict. But that is not the hardest part about it. Because it's in the midst of that 
of that conflict that is coming, of this hatred and persecution and bloodshed that is coming from the world for the church, that Jesus says this in verse 27, you also will bear witness. See, Jesus does not call his disciples to return tit for tat. He does not call his disciples to return hate for hate and killing for killing and blood for blood. Jesus says, when they unsynagogue you, when they put you up on that cross, you don't revile them. You bear witness about me because you were with me from the beginning and you know who I am. They don't know me, but you know me. When they give you hate, you give them love. When they take life from you, you give life to them. When they condemn you, you speak the words of righteousness. The hardest part about this crisis that is coming is that the disciples are called to be countercultural, to be light in a dark place and life in a dead place, to be people of love rather than hatred, to bear witness to the fact that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It seems like it is an impossible witness to carry. It seems like, how is the church supposed to bear witness to this reality that God loves his people and he loves his people so much that he sent his son to die for them? He said this earlier in the chapter. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are now my friends if you do what I command you. Says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father, I made known to you. How, how is the church supposed to bear witness to the love of God? How is the church supposed to survive this crisis that is coming after their Lord leaves and departs? Well, the son has help that he's sending. His reinforcements, he has a helper. He has someone that he is sending to minister to them in the midst of this crisis and to help them as they are trying to work their way through it. He says this in verse 26, But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The helper is going to come, that the Son will send his Spirit to help us in the midst of this crisis, that will help us as we are trying to bear witness to the love of God in Christ in a world of darkness. The, the Son is going to send his Spirit. Now, let me, I think it might just be helpful if we just take a step back and just review a little bit what Christians believe about the Holy Spirit, just so we can kind of put this in context. Um, Christians believe in uh, an understanding of God that we summarize with the single word Trinity, okay? The best way to understand the Trinity, I I found um, this this way of thinking about it really helpful. I didn't come up with it, so it came from Kevin DeYoung, but I think it's really helpful. You can summarize the Christian doctrine of the Trinity with seven statements. Number one, there's only one God. Number two, the Father is God. Number three, the Son is God. Number four, the Spirit is God. Number five, the Father is not the Son. Number six, the Son is not the Spirit. Number seven, I'd lost count somewhere. Inevitably, there is only one God. Father's God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, 
Father is not the Son, Son is not the Spirit, Spirit is not the Father. It's three persons and one God. Uh, Christians believe in a trinity, a triune nature of God, of, uh, of this communion of love. Really, only Christians can say with integrity that God is love. Because we believe not that God, not only that God loves his creation, but rather that in his essence, who he is, is love. That the Father is the lover, and he loves the Son with the Spirit. He loves the beloved uh, for all eternity and all past. And so the Son says, when I ascend to the Father's right hand, when I join him on his throne, I'm going to send my Spirit of love, I'm going to send the Spirit who will bring you into this communion that you can have with Father, Son, and Spirit. I'm going to welcome you into the very life of God. And this Spirit will be my help for you in the midst of this crisis that is coming. So what, what, why, how does the Spirit help How does the Spirit help in the crisis? Let me give you eight reasons, eight reasons why the Spirit comes, eight reasons from this passage why the Spirit is coming in the midst of the crisis. Not the only reasons in the Bible, but eight reasons why Jesus sends the Spirit. Number one, to bear witness about Him. To bear witness about Him. It says in verse 26, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. So when you and I are called to bear witness to the nature of God and the person of God and the love of God in the midst of crisis, in the midst of hatred, in the midst of darkness, we are not called to do that of our own devices, but rather the Spirit is bearing witness through us. The Spirit is sent so that you and I might, might be uh, able to bear witness. So the Spirit comes to help us bear witness. Number two, The Spirit comes to keep us from falling away. Chapter 16, verse 1. I have said all these things. All these things includes what he's just said about the Spirit. To keep you from falling away. So I'm giving you this promise of the Spirit who's going to come to keep you from falling away. To keep you from falling into despair and doubt and self-loathing and self-hatred. And I'm going to send my Spirit to keep you in the vine. To, to continue to keep you that you would continue to abide in me. He sends the Spirit to keep us from falling away. He sends the Spirit, number three to meet us in our sorrow. It says this in chapter 16, verse 4. He said, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? And of course, some of the disciples are confused because they had asked, where are you going? But Jesus is saying, you're not still asking me where you're going. You're not concerned with where I'm going. You're just thinking about yourselves. That's the point of chapter 16, verse 5. He says, but because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And so Jesus is acknowledging, because he's going to leave and go to the Father, that sorrow has filled them. And he, he, he recognizes that, that it's hard to get over that, to get over the fact that this person who they've been with for three years, day after day, night after night, they've been watching everything that he does, they've been observing every interaction that he's had. It's hard for them to, to get over that. And he's recognizing that sorrow has filled their heart, and yet nevertheless he promises that he's going to send them the 
helper, the spirit, the paraclete, the encourager, the exhorter, in the midst of their sorrow. He's promising them that he is going to send them the one who can meet them in the midst of their sorrow, who's going to be able to be for them what his presence is among them even at this moment. It's an amazing promise. It's an amazing promise. He also says that he's going to send the Spirit, number four, for their good. He's going to send the Spirit for their good. Uh, He says this in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus says, if I ascend to the Father, I will send the Spirit, and that will be better for you than if I was to stay here with you. But the Spirit is going to come, and he's going to minister my presence to you so that even though I will be in heaven, you'll still always have me with you as you go to the ends of the earth making disciples, as you go to bear witness to my name in the, in the midst of trial and tribulation. He, he says, it's, it's better for you. It's to your advantage. The, the Father sends the Spirit for our good. He, he sends the Spirit because it's better for us than His physical presence being here with us. He sends the Spirit to us because it's for our good. He also sends the Spirit, number five, to convict the world. To convict the world. It says, And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, the the most important part about all three of these verses here, or all four of these verses here, sorry, is that word convict, okay? That word convict does not mean the Spirit's going to come to publicly shame them, He's, that the Spirit is, would come just to, to belittle the world so that the church can feel triumphant. That word convict, it means conviction with a view towards repentance. So when the Spirit comes, He's coming to convict them in such a way that it would lead them to repentance, that it would lead them to, to growing in Christ, that it would lead them to turning away from their sins and turning to Christ. Which is why he convicts them concerning sin, because they don't believe in him. And he convicts them concerning righteousness. Then I take that to mean that he convicts them concerning their own lack of righteousness, their own unrighteousness, their own inability to keep the law. Because I'm going to the Father and he'll see me no longer. And the Spirit will come concerning judgment. Because the ruler of this world, the ways of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the prince of darkness, Satan himself, will be judged. Jesus just said that a minute ago in chapter 13, that the ruler of this world is now cast out. And so the Spirit is coming to turn the world away from wickedness, to turn the world away from unrighteousness, to turn the world away from unbelief, to turn the world away from Satan, and to turn it to Christ. The Spirit is coming to convict with a view towards repentance. Uh, Number six, the Spirit comes to guide the church into all truth. The Spirit comes to guide the church into all truth. 
He said that a minute, notice this title that he gives two different times in this passage. In chapter 15, verse 26, he says, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. And then he describes it in the same way in chapter 16, verse 13. He says, when the spirit of truth comes and he will guide the church into all truth. He says he does not speak on his own authority. And so the spirit comes to help us understand the truth. The Spirit comes that we can understand His Word and understand what is true and understand what is wrong. The Spirit comes that, to help us understand and have insight and light into what is right and wrong. He comes to illumine the truth of God. The Spirit comes, number seven, to give us the words of Christ. The Spirit comes to give us the words of Christ. He comes to, to take what the Son speaks and take what the Father has given to the Son and declared, speak it to us. So He not only comes that He can illumine truth to us, but He also comes that He can inspire truth to us. And those things happen, of course, in the words of Holy Scripture. We see Paul say this, all Scripture is breathed out by God. That word for breathed out by God is theonoustos. So theo meaning God, noustos meaning breath or spirit. So all Scripture is God-spirited. All Scripture is God-spirited. It's inspired. It's breathed out by God. It comes with the breath of God. God breathes and Scripture arises. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so the Spirit comes to declare the truth of Scripture to us and then using the the truth of Scripture to us to guide us into all truth, as he says here, to inspire Scripture and to illumine Scripture. Finally, the Spirit comes. The Spirit comes to glorify the Son. The Spirit comes to glorify the Son. It says in chapter 16 verse 14 says he being the spirit will glorify me he will shine his spotlight on me he will point our attention to me he will fix his gaze and the gaze of all people on the sun the the spirit comes to glorify the sun and in the gospel of john the glory of god is seen in the cross of christ where God is seen to be the most worthy, the most weighty, the most glorious, the most praiseworthy, where God is seen to have His righteousness and His law shine the brightest, is in the cross of Christ. And so when Jesus says in John 16, verse 14, He, being the Spirit, will glorify me, He's saying the Spirit will empower me as I go up to the cross, and the Spirit will turn your gaze to the cross so that you will see and exalt and exult in me. The Spirit does not come to magnify Himself. The Spirit does not come to make much of Himself. The Spirit does not come to do uh, for in and of Himself. He comes because the Son has sent Him, so that He can magnify the work of the Son on the cross in the salvation of sinners. Oh, Christian, God has sent us the perfect Helper in this time of crisis, as we are called to bear witness to the truth of the gospel to bear witness to the God of love who loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son.
so that you and I might have life in him. The the son, when he ascends, sees the crisis that he is leaving behind. And he sends the helper who can give us far more than we even know that we need in this moment of crisis for our good and for his glory. So I want to close our time by giving you seven ways Seven ways that you need the ministry of the Spirit. Seven, seven reasons that you need the ministry of the Spirit. Seven reasons that this is good news, not in general, but for you. Okay? So you need, number one, the Spirit's communion. You need the Spirit's communion. When the Father sends the helper, the paraclete, the exhorter, the encourager, he comes to help us by drawing us into communion with himself. We see this, of course, furthered in the book of Romans, where, where Paul the apostle says this, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You and I need this helper who can draw us into union with Christ and draw us into communion with the Father. You and I need the Son to send the Spirit that we might know this Father of the Son as our own Father, that we might cry out to Him, Abba, Father. You need the Son's commun- uh, the Spirit's communion. But in order for that, you also need, number two, the Spirit's conviction. You need the Spirit's conviction. All of us need the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. All of us need the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. That sounds perhaps a little bit old-fashioned. That sounds perhaps a little bit, a little bit fundamentalist, a little bit fundy. I, I know what you're thinking. And yet everyone recognizes that if true redemption and true change is to take place for any of us, it begins with recognizing that we have a problem. Everyone understands that. Everyone knows that. Um, before uh, the social commentator David Brooks was, became a Christian, he wrote a book um, called Social Animals, and this is not an endorsement of the social animal. This is not an endorsement of this book. It is not a Christian book, okay? But he does write this very insightful note. He's, he's telling the story of this um, woman named Erica who, who um, had an affair, and he says this, By the time she found herself in that hotel room with Mr. Make-Believe, she had become a different person without realizing it. The decision to sleep with him was not the real moment of moral failing. That moment didn't even feel like a decision. It was just the culmination of a long, unconscious shift. She never consciously rejected her old values. She would have fiercely denied it if you'd asked, but those old ways of being had gained less prominence in the unconscious jockeying for supremacy inside. Erica had become a shallower person, disconnected from the deepest potential of her own nature. And the weeks after, when she thought about the episode, 
she became newly aware that it was, really was possible to become a stranger to yourself. You always have to be on the lookout and to find some vantage point from which you can try to observe yourself from the outside. She told herself a story about herself. It was the story of drift. Christians, everyone needs to know when they drift. Everyone knows that they need to know, know when they drift. Don't you know that about yourself? Don't you feel that, that? That deep down in your heart, there's something that is tugging you, something that is trying to make you drift away. And if you don't have the Spirit's work of conviction, you do not stand a chance. Christians, the Spirit's work of conviction is God's gift to us. That He would bring us to the point of confession. That we would see there really can be redemption for the worst sins that we can commit. There really can be forgiveness from the Father. There really can be, uh, there really can be reconciliation. There really can be redemption. There really can be something that is broken, that is made whole, and something that is dead, that is made alive. And this doesn't happen unless the Spirit's work of conviction bears upon the soul of each of us. You need the Spirit's work of conviction. You also need the Spirit's glorying. You need the Spirit's glorying. Now, the Spirit glorifies the Son. He magnifies the Son. He points us to the cross. The Spirit's work is to make much of Christ. The Spirit's work is not to magnify Himself. The Spirit's work is to make much of Christ. If you want to be a Spirit-filled, Spirit-led Christian, you will be a Christ-led, Christ-filled Christian. Because the Spirit's work, the Spirit's role is to make much of Jesus. The Spirit's role in our lives is to show us the Son, to apply the benefits of the gospel to the darkest places of our heart to the darkest recesses of our soul. The ministry of the Spirit is to help us glory in the Son even as He glories in the Son. To fill us and lead us with Christ that we would know Him and know Him truly. You need the Spirit's glorying. You also need the Spirit's words. You need the Spirit's words the work of Scripture is, uh, the words of Christ are found in the Word of Scripture. The Word of God is found in the words of Scripture, and the Spirit is the one who's inspired and illumines those words. You do not have a hope at finding truth apart from the Spirit's ministry through the works of Christ. Maybe you say, I really just want to know what the Spirit wants me to know. Well, open up your Bible because he's put his words right in front of you that you and I might know the words of God on the lips of Christ. Oh, Christian, the Spirit is speaking to us this morning through his word. He's inspired us not to glory in himself, not to draw attention to himself, but to draw attention to the Son. You need the words of the Scripture. You need the words of the Scripture. You also need the witness of the Scripture. You also need the witness of the Scripture. It's not a coincidence. In chapter 15, Jesus tells his disciples, you will bear witness, right after he's told them, the Spirit bears witness. 
Those are, do not happen apart from one another. The Spirit's witness happens in our witness. And so maybe when you go and you are, um, you, you're at work and you have a chance to share the gospel with your friend and maybe you're stressing out because you, you're trying to come up with the perfect hook to just kind of get them in there and you're just looking for ways to kind of to, to do a one-two and get them in there, I, I would argue maybe you should let the Spirit bear witness through you instead. That maybe you should trust that the Spirit witness through you you just worry about knowing the word of god and the works in the words of scripture and you let the spirit bring those to conversation when you're speaking with unbelievers and you trust that that will be enough you trust that the spirit knows what that person needs to hear at that moment to bear witness about them and father and friends that takes so much pressure off of us That takes so much pressure off of us trying to figure out and second guess and put people that we know into a box when we could just know the Bible really, really well and let that bubble up in conversation and trust that the Spirit will use that in our conversations with unbelievers in the way that He seems fit. Oh, Christians, we need the Spirit's work of witnessing if we are to witness at all. I would also say we need the Spirit's comfort. We need the Spirit's comfort. Um, for a couple of reasons, I've been rereading through um, The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, and um, it's a book every Christian should read. And I was reading this weekend about, um, if you don't know The Pilgrim's Progress, it's an allegory uh, seeking to kind of illustrate the, the the Christian life through the perspective of a, the main character whose name is Christian. And so he follows Christian on all these adventures. And uh, Christian uh, in this particular story is is gets off the trail and he ends up in Doubting Castle and the giant despair finds him and he locks him up in a prison. I love this book; it's so good. And uh, the giant despair locks him up in a in a prison. And so the giant despair is that that evening talking to his wife and his wife says, "Well, you know what you're going to have to do to him." And he says, "Yeah, I know, I know, I know." So the next morning, the giant despair comes down and just beats the snot out of Christian and his friend. It's true. It's in the book. I, I didn't come up with it. And the next day he comes and he, 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 he leaves them alone after he's just done that. And then he, and they're barely alive. And he, and he's talking to his wife that night and his, his wife says, well, are, are you think they're ready? He's like, well, we'll see. And so he comes down the next day. He says, look, I'm just like, there's no hope for you. You're never going to escape from this place. So here's the deal. It would be better for you to take your own life than for you to keep living. Because the longer you keep living, the more I'm just going to flog you and beat you and torture you. And I'll just leave you here and I'll let you make up your mind. And so Giant Despair goes back up to talk to his wife. And uh, he comes back the next day and, and Pilgrim is still alive, or Christian is still alive with his friend Hopeful. And so he, he flies at them and he's about, to, he's about to beat them again and something happens, he ends up going back upstairs and, and Christian is like, well, maybe he's right. Maybe we should just, it'd be better to end it than to have to keep living like this. I don't want to live like this forever. Meanwhile, the giant goes back up and, and is talking to his wife and, and his wife says, well, how is it going? And, his wife, and he says, well, I think they're going to take some more convincing. So the next day, the giant despair leads them out uh, into the yard and he shows them all the bones of all the pilgrims that he's killed before he says i'm telling you you don't it would be better for you that just to do it yourself than if you make me do it 
Well, and the giant despair leads them back to the prison for one more night. And, and, and Christian realizes that he has this key in his pocket called promise. And that promise will unlock all the locks in Doubting Castle. It's very convenient. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I am in Doubting Castle and I am being beaten by giant despair, I do not have the strength to pull the key out of my pocket. And in those moments, I need the Spirit's comfort. I need the Spirit to come and comfort me and give me the peace that surpasses all understanding and to minister to me when everything else seems like it's falling down on me. And it seems like there is no escape. Now, I, I need the Spirit to come and minister to me in those seasons and groanings that are too deep for words, as the Apostle Paul says. Christians, you need the Spirit's comfort. And finally, you need the Spirit's grip. You need the Spirit's grip. You need the Spirit to grab hold of you because you cannot always hold on to him as strongly as you wish you could. I have a friend named Mark who wrote a great book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. It is on that bookshelf. You should pick a copy up and read it on your way out. Went through a terrible tragedy in his life, and he and his wife were, were just at their wits end. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to get over this tragedy. And, and somehow he had a friend who had a friend who had a friend who who knew um, a pastor named John Piper, and that John Piper reached out to him with an email, and he, he gave him some advice, and one of, the, one of the pieces of advice that he gave him in that time was, keep on holding on to the one who keeps you holding on. Oh, Christians, you and I need the ministry of the Spirit. We need his grip to hold on to us because our grip sometimes g- grows weak. And sometimes our strength fails. And sometimes we are weak in need. And sometimes we get distracted and we lose sight of the glory of Christ. And it's in those times that the Spirit holds on to us. And it's in those times that you and I keep on holding on to the one who keeps us holding on. It seems an odd gift that when the sun ascends on high, the help that he would send is his, is his Holy Spirit. Yet, as we have seen today, there could be no greater gift that he would give us in his absence than that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your helper. We thank you that your son has come, that we might have life and have it abundantly. We thank you that your son sends us his helper, his spirit, his comforter to guide us into all truth and to grab hold of us. Even when we're in Doubting Castle and we're being assailed by giant despair, that the spirit does not let go of us. Father, I, I pray for us that you would help us to be a people who are led by the Spirit into the glory of your Son. 
because it's in that glory that we find life and find it eternally. And so we pray all these things in his holy name. Amen.